G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. Hi viewers, this is Mark Bardenquist here from Fisher's Fly and Sport Fishing Weeper and I'm here to do a podcast with Josh from the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. G'day Bargy, well it's great to have you on mate, we've been trying to tee this one up for a while and you're a pretty busy man running that operation up there in Weeper but it's um, it's great to actually finally get some time and sit down and have a proper chat. Yeah, no thanks Josh, I've been, I've been hanging to get on in over yard, it's, it, it should be pretty good. Pretty good podcast, this one, you know, because of me being in it and all. So. <laughs> no, no, no tickets there whatsoever, Bargy. <laughs> <laughs> no, none at all. No, no, it's gonna, no, I'm looking forward to it, Josh. It's really good. Good to catch up with you again. It's been a while since we've seen each other. So, Yeah, it's been a while since you left us here in Harvey Bay and went up to Weeper. I don't know why. Like, you left the school mackerel and all the cool species, <laughs> but... Yeah, well, it's probably, it'd be eight years now since I came up here. Um, all right. Oh, yeah, time flies, doesn't it? Bloody oath. Well, we might, before we jump into um, how you got up to Weeper and when you took over Fishers for Lion Sport Fishing, we might start with a bit of your history to give people an idea of how you got into fishing and fly fishing in general. So did you want to just tell the listeners um, where you grew up? Yeah, sure, Josh. I, I grew up, I was born and bred in Maryborough, southeast Queensland. Um, I had grandparents with a with a substantial cattle property about 50 kilometres inland on, on the... Um, on T-Bar Creek, which now they've, which runs into the Mary, it's one of the tributaries of the Mary River. So I spent a lot of time up there, and I was a young fella. I'd go and stay up there with the with the grandparents, and um, grandfather used to love his fishing down the creek and, and hunting. So he taught me to hunt ducks with a shotgun and and rabbits, and um, eventually in the fishing, he was grandfather's a mad keen fisherman, Josh, and he used to fish for their prize target species up there was the was the mullet, and these weren't the freshwater mullet, they were the big bully mullet that had worked their way up the creeks and grow out and then, then sort of head back down to, to do their annual migration and, and spawn in the salt. So we um, we used to fish for these mullet, which is a pretty technical thing back then. They used to use them long rangoon cane rods. They used to call them a wacko rod, but there's probably a hundred different names for them. Um, they all had their certain their special baits they'd use. The grandfather was these big white milkworms that we'd go and dig up with a with a chip hoe and then um, keep them in a bucket of bucket of dirt and we'd go and fish them under a bobby float. So it was, it was good fun. It taught me a lot about fishing. I always got in trouble for moving around too much on the bank or making too much noise. But um, then um, I, being young and quite impressionable in the fishing scenes, I started reading the early Fishing World and Modern Fishing uh, magazines that were, were in vogue back then and I, I 
used to read these articles of people catching bass and freshwater cod and barramundi, and I was really intrigued by that. So I saved up all my pocket money and, and bought a little Celta spinner one day, and I took it up there and, and started throwing that around. And, and, and lo and behold, I started to catch all these big spangled perch on this little Celta spinner. So that sort of planted the seed for me to, to pick up sort of go to higher things in the fishing circles. And this all happened when I was around six or seven years old. Um, then living in Maribyrnong, we you know, got a job in there and eventually got a, got a wife, Denise, and married, got married and lived in Maribyrnong. But we used to spend a lot of time fishing in the Mary River, um, mainly lure fishing. And we used to go up to the Mary River barrage and and um, eventually I saved up all my pocket money and bought an old composite developments fly rod with a System 2 reel. And I think... The first time I used it, I caught a barramundi and a tarp, and, I, and that sort of planted the seed, and I was hooked forever on, from there on, you know. Well, you had that um, Mary River pretty well sussed for the barra and threadies and that sort of thing. Like, you're probably the only guide that was successfully guiding for the saltwater barra and threadies there. And um, I guess, too, like, even in the early or sort of late 80s, you're involved in the answer club, so there would have been a fair bit of development in tackle and that sort of thing over those period, and a lot of guys chasing the same species, so that would have been a good place for you to learn as well. Oh, 100%. There were quite a few of the older guys that lived down around the mouth of Riverheads and Harvey Bay that were in the Maribyrnong Club. It was a very strong club back then. And um, most of them were, were live bait guys, a few lure fellas. But, yeah, they always had tail to catching big salty barrows and shredfin salmon down around the mouth there. And that really interested me, Josh. And I, I sort of – you had to read between the lines to, to, to get rough locations and, and, and tides. But eventually – I started to fish it harder and harder and, and, and had moderate success. I think oh, I was fishing probably 15 to 18 hours to get one bite from a barra, which I thought was pretty good. But as time went on, I started to get my own my own bit of a – my head around the thing, you know, on tides and, and time frames and time of the day, which was all a very big thing down there. And in, in the end there, we could nearly almost guarantee we'd go down on a certain time, on a certain tide, and we'd, we'd catch a barra or, or a big thready down there, which is – which was pretty amazing for me. We were so close to Brisbane. But when we um, started looking at the statistics in the Mary River down there, after the Fitzroy, that was the second biggest commercial catch of barramundi on the east coast of Australia at the time. And it was probably around 25 tonne of barrows that were commercially netted out of that river every year, um, which is it's, it's a lot of fish, you know. It's a hell of a lot of fish. So the numbers of the fish were there, but... I think nowadays with the improvement in sounders and all the technology, there's more and more people actually working them out and catching them, which is, a, you know, it's a good thing. I think too, um, your involvement with like the old fishing, uh, fishing down under DVD with John Hankey really sort of put the the Mary River on the map as a um, as a decent viable barramundi fishery and threadfin salmon fishery. Like I remember you doing segments with Morsey and that sort of thing. And I think for a lot of people, it opened their eyes to go, hang on, you don't have to go north just to catch them. Like we've got this on our doorstep. Um, mm. And so a lot of guys really started getting into it from that. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I remember that trip with Morsi. Um, John Hankey sort of set it up, and, and, and I'm, I'm still friends with John and Pete. Actually, Pete's up here next week. He's coming up for fly fish for eight days or so. But um, but rewinding to that, we, we met up, and it was still pre-daylight. Early in the morning, we put the boat in, and Morsi said, well, where, where are we going to go and chase these shreddies? And I said, I'll oh, just right behind you there, Pete. There's one swimming along, so... I think about his third cast. He got one a metre fifteen on a, on a on a black and barred from memory. So yeah, and we're pretty lucky that you've got a pretty good fishery for that shallow water stuff. Like when they're up in the snake drains and on the edges, feeding on jelly prawns and small bait. And oh, it's fantastic! Just sight fishing metre threadies, and, and a lot of them threadies down there were 
they're a very stocky fish and a lot of big ones too josh like meter fish are just what we're, we're the locations we're fishing in the time of the year um they're all sort of meter plus fish i think the the best one i've ever seen down was 133 that was that was a really nice fish but i've heard of a lot bigger ones taken since you know but it's the same as the barra fishery like the average size of fish here is um like a, a mid 80s fish is quite standard and quite a few meter fish get caught every season and even so far this season a lot of my um conventional anglers and that catching them up 110 20 that sort of thing so really good quality barramundi fishing when you can get them oh massive fish i remember years ago talking to a commercial operator that worked in the river since he was since he was a child and i said to him i said no oh, what's the biggest barrier you've ever seen come out the river in a commercial net and he said well he said when i was a teenager working in the fish cup in maribar and this is probably going back 40 years probably 45 years might even be 50 years ago josh he said we had two barra come in in one week and he said one weighed in at 93 pounds and one weighed in at 97 pounds you know bloody hell hard to fathom <laughs> oh man they'd be they'd be up in the meter 50s i know my son caught his first barra my young fellow jacko caught was in the mary river and that was right up above the town reach in maribar and that one was 132 and i reckon that fish was probably 30 to 35 kilos it was an incredible thing you know i remember that fish that was an absolute slob that was jacko was only what about 11 12 then yeah he's 12 year old yeah. yeah yeah incredible fish like i've only seen a few that big come out of there i know jason work he's got a dollar 30 and a dollar 32 out of there but um you don't see too many and i just remember seeing that photo of that fish sitting on jacko's lap and it looked <laughs> bloody bigger than him <laughs> oh well it was he couldn't even pick it up and I, I sat it on his lap there and just before he released it there and it, it rolled over and squashed him he couldn't get out from under it it <laughs> <Pretty laughs> <cool. laughs> made him yell and carry on but no that, that that was a really good fish and we just thought it was a big thready on a, on a deep diving i think we put that on a killer lure 20 plus killer lure river at but um we just thought it was a big thready till it's poked its head out the water and we that sort of made us stand to attention a bit but yeah and when did you cool. when did you really start ramping up the fly fishing side of things? Was this before you started guiding there, or was it sort of after you started guiding that you wanted to branch more into that? About about two years before I started chartering Harvey Bay, and this is back in the early two thousands. I um I, I had a, I had a bit of a I lost the passion to fish there for a while. Josh, I was I was a pretty keen hunter. I used to hunt a lot of feral pigs and deer and whatnot. But I, I got back into the fishing big time around, around two thousand and um. I got back into fly fishing. You know, I'd done a bit around the bay, fished on the flats, caught some goldies, a bit in the river, tarpons and barrows, but not, nothing super serious. But when I started, when I actually started, kicked off guiding in the in the early 2000s there, it, um, the bug really bit. And then I sort of met met, met up with Morsi and a few of the guys, you know, Mark Bernish that had the um, oh, Fly Life, or not Fly Life, what's that magazine? Uh, so Fly oh, Life's yeah. the main one in Australia. Yeah, no, fly, I forget the name. Anyway, he had a magazine there and, and, and met, met a, quite a few guys that were really sort of well-known in the industry and that really kindled my interest. Then I met up with John Hankey and it sort of all took off from there, Josh. And Yeah, once I started fly fishing, I didn't really pick up baitcast or spin gear for probably five or six years after that. So were you yeah. doing much fishing with like Sid Boschhammer and that back then? Because I know he was right into that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, I done bits with Sid. Sort of, I, I was, I sort of kicked off the fly fishing around the time he started chartering in Harvey Bay. I can't even remember the year. Once again, in mid to early two thousands. But um, yeah, bits and pieces with Sid. Yeah, yeah, we went in the river and caught barras and a few queenies down in the river mouth. But um, back then, Jared was here. We fished with Jared a couple of times in the in the river mouth. He seems to be kicking some goals over there in Flamingo and getting onto yeah. those big snook and tarpon and doing really well. 
Yeah, no, he's got it wide. He's a good little angler. You know, even old Sid, he, he's no fool when it comes to finding fish and catching them. So Yeah, I've got to catch up with Sid for a fish soon, and he's pretty keen to record a podcast. So I'll be keen yeah. to hear some of the stories from when he was guiding back in the day, and um, he's obviously done a fair bit of travel with it too. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, Sid, Sid's one of the good guys. He's, you know, one of the old school fellas that, that back in the day sort of worked a lot of things out himself just by looking and trial and error. And you were involved with a few other projects like the Black Torpedoes DVD with um, Taron Jeffries and, and a few of the mm. crew back then, like Muzz. And... Yeah, yeah, spent a lot of time fishing with Muzz. Muzz and I were partners in crime, catching barrows in the river, and we'd always go and explore new areas and work them out. Um, you know, young Taron Jeffries, his friends, he actually came up fishing. I met him, moved up to Harvey Bay, and we'd done the Black Torpedoes film shoot up the aisle, and that, that, was, that was pretty good fun, you know, but... Um, yeah, I think Taz, he's, he's living back down in Tasmania down there. He's got a got a girl down there, so he's sort of chasing a few trout and whatnot down there. But I think that DVD was a bit of an eye-opener for some people. Like the, um, you've got like your long-tail tuna on the flats, like watching literally as that it was titled Black Torpedoes. Looks like a torpedo moving down the flat. Um, mm. But like you probably, when you were guiding here and doing a lot of the flats fishing, you had the golden days for it. Like you had the big goldies on the flats. You had the start of that little juvenile black marlin fishery where it was, um, starting to get more and more numbers, the tuna, pretty much everything. So um, I yeah. think before you went to Weeper, you definitely had the best years of it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. We, we would go up and fish. We'd fish the tide up on the Rooney's Flats and you might get some days 30 or 40 shots at, at odds of long tails coming down the flat. And in the afternoon, you could always go back and drop in behind Moon Point and from there, you know, have a couple of shots of some big goldies or a GT or, or a Diamond Trevally or something down there. So you know, it's, it was really, really good that, that early sort of period, you know, and, and I do remember one day in the first gutter against the beach at high tide, so we're only talking about 1.2 metres of water and there's a pot of 15 juvenile black swimming only like 20 metres off the beach, you know, that's probably some of the memories I'll, I'll never forget that, and I don't know if you'll ever see that again. We, we, you may do. Every year's a bit different with that marlin migration. Some years are big, some years aren't, but that was certainly a, a massive year, that one. Yeah, last year was a pretty incredible season, so it'll be interesting what happens this year. Mm, yeah, I heard last year was good. There's certainly plenty of people catching them, but yeah, it's um, be bigger. Most people that I know sort of went up. Um, they were sort of averaging catching fish or at least hooking fish for the session, both yeah on lures, baits, and fly. Um, so it was pretty exciting for a lot of people to get their first fish up there. Oh yeah, that's no, fantastic. I certainly guided a lot of people under some their first mowing up there on, on fly and, and conventional tackle, and you know even though the fish aren't big, they sort of make up for it in spirit. And and being dumb, you could, sometimes there yeah, we we hook a fish and he'd race off and do a jump and throw out a fly or a lure he'd just turn around and come back and eat it again you know they they're not um they're not the world's brightest fish but but they are a really really cool thing to catch on the fly rod yeah and i think it's that backdrop too like just having fraser island in the background like you've obviously got the um the bait and switch fish that you'll catch out in that slightly deeper water but you've also got the opportunity to sight cast fish up in the shallows on the right day and just having like fraser island biggest sand island in the world in the background um mm. makes for a pretty interesting backdrop and it's one of those things, even when you're um, waiting for fish to come up on the flat or even if you're just trolling a belly flap teaser or something like that, you're always looking at something cool and seeing different things. And... Oh, 100%. Yep, yep. No, I've seen some pretty cool stuff up there. I won't. I remember one. I won't bore you, but, but I remember one November a long time ago, I was up in there just um, on the north side of Watumba Creek there in that big bend in the beach. We used to call it the pocket. There was bait balls pushed right and hard against the beach and... Um, I saw a fish jump through when I thought it was a big mullet just jumped through that, that bloody bait bull on the beach here. I wasn't thinking any more of it. And I um, had some clients who actually had a, well, probably one of the first mothership gigs up there back then. And um, 
we had some little Rapala CD11s and the boys wanted to try and troll, off, troll around the edges of that and try and get a goldie or something. We ended up catching four bonefish out of those bait balls. The bones were actually in there feeding on the on the bait fish, you know. That, that was pretty It's pretty cool interesting, the um, the bonefish here. Like it, it seems every winter they um, a lot of the bait fishers seem to catch them out in that deeper water or you'll catch them on like a little ghillie slug or a mm. micro jig. Um, it's a shame we don't see them up really on the flats. I don't know if that's whether to do with traffic and that sort of thing or if they're just doing something completely different, if they're just out there spawning or what it is. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I know guys that have snorkeled up on, on the, um, the Sandy Cape Bar, up right up even as far up as um, Spit Bombing there, and they've seen big numbers. You know, schools of 30 and 40 up through there and some quite big fish too. But, you know, th- these fish aren't dumb. And if there's been a lot of commercial netters running up and down that beach all them years, th- those fish have probably learnt to stay out a bit wide. I remember an old neighbour of mine in Harvey Bay, old Kevy Cleary, he was a genuine old mackerel fisherman from years ago. He used to only line fish. He hated all the new generation of ring netters and all the net fishermen. But um, he often talked about running whiting nets around the rocks up there on um, Station Hill, and he said he'd always pull bonefish out of the nets in the early days, you know, but in late, later years it was a bit of a rarity to catch one in that shallow water. And one of the um, one of the cool species you ticked off here on fly, which you're one of only a few people, was a permit. Um, like you've done it now, Murray Smith, Muzz, um, Paul Dolan. So there hasn't been too many people that have done it. So did you want to talk a bit about that one? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. The old permit. Yeah, well, I know Paul caught one up at um, Rooney's there one day. It's only a small fish, about probably 30 centimetres long. It's just basically like a big dart, but it was, you know, the yellow fin. It was definitely a permit, and I'm pretty sure that was an enact, the one that he caught. Pretty cool, um, pretty cool achievement still, like. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm, yeah, no, hundred percent. It's the first one there. I know on a, on a flyer. It probably yeah would have been the first one on a flyer that Paul caught. Um, and and I'd been seeing these permits, and you could pick them in the water clear as daylight. Sometimes we'd be thinking, oh, is that a gold? Is it a permit? But quite a few times we saw them. I thought, no, that's hundred percent permit. You could tell by the fins and the big big black eye and everything. But anyway, we we were seeing quite a few on the seagrass flats between Moon and Begimba. You never know, then you'd see one or two come past or a school, but it was a bit of a rarity. But um. Yeah, no, we we, we um, had some friends in the commercial fishing industry that used to net them in certain spots and we um, ran Woody Oil and then we went looking and we, we found them and Muzz was haunting them and I was haunting them, but we still didn't get the runs on the board. We'd catch a Goldie or a little Queenie or a Barassi Trevelli or whatever, but yeah, eventually one day, I was, and it happened to be, I was there with Taz, he was actually had his camera in the boat too. And um, we saw this school of fish come along and, and there was just one little, it was a cloudy day, we had one little tiny patch of sun, so I threw out this little olive shrimp because they, they were feeding on this dark weedy bottom and I just put two and two together and thought, oh, well, a dark weedy bottom, the bait fish or the shrimps or crustaceans are probably going to be pretty camouflaged to that. So I put a little olive shrimp out and um, just come tight on one and caught him. And that's the one that Taz filmed on the black torpe- torpedoes DVD, you know. It's probably only, I don't know, eight or ten pound, but, but you know, that was the first, First one I'd caught there, it's it's pretty pretty cool. It's a bit of an achievement for me, you know. Oh bloody oath, especially yeah, for how few that like you don't get too many shots each year, and it really mm. depends on water um, color if we've had rain or wind and that sort of thing. Like Muzz got his first one last year um, after chasing him for fifteen odd years. Funny thing was on another olive shrimp, I tied him up a few, and <laughs> that's what he'd been catching most of his goldies and queenfish on, and finally got to connect to one and got it to the boat. So. Yeah, the old um, the GoPro footage of that's pretty good here at Yahoo and in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the footage. I've seen, I saw the photos. I haven't seen that footage. I'll have to ask him, have a look at him. Yeah, ne- next time he's up there fishing with you and the boys, tell him to bring his USB stick. It's one of the best videos ever because you can just see after how many years how excited he is and 
I think like Muzz has caught some pretty impressive fish over the years. So um, to get oh, yeah. see him get all rolled up about that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think they're certainly a podium finish when you catch a bone. Oh, yeah, sorry, the bone fish a permit. You know, we get we get a lot of clients up here that catch their first one. We actually had a guy last year come on a camp trip with us, and it was his first week ever fly fishing. He just went and bought the rod and reel and come on a camp trip with us. And um, I think on his fourth day of um, fly fishing, is fishing with one of my guides, Drew Bolton, there, and they. They um they got one about oh it must have been eight or nine kilos on the flats up there which is a pretty big thing but we've been casting these things all week and they wouldn't eat and eventually they last day they decided to turn around and eat and we caught a couple on that last day but no it's it's really good to guide people on them even some guys they just see a permit and they they, they think they've had a lucky life just to see one you know but they're they're, they're pretty common fish though Josh there's a lot more around than you realise I think but. Yeah, yeah. I think it just depends where you are. Like, obviously, Weeper's got a pretty healthy population from Rocky North. Um, there's some yeah. really good flats, as you know. Like, you've done quite a few trips with um, back in the fishing down under DVD days with John Hankey. There's quite a few healthy flats up there with good populations of them. Oh yeah, and it's not too far from Harbour Bay either, or from Brisbane. You know, only half a day's drive, and you can be in some pretty good permit country once you work out the tides and the um, the location where you have to be. And a lot of it is tidal too, Josh. You can go from one one day see 100 permit a day and two days time the tide drop off and you might only see five or ten or, or sometimes none you know they generally they really travel with that tide and if the tides drop out well, the fish don't seem to travel with um with fly fishing as well what's some of the places that fly fishing has taken you like i know you did a trip with john hankey to belize chasing the tarpon and all that sort of thing um so, yeah yeah where's some of the spots that it's taken you over the years yeah well, in 2010 we went to belize we um we went over for two weeks there and and uh it was a really good trip. I fished with John in, in one of the pangers there. We had some guides. We went to El Pascador, which is right up the top end, Ambergris Cay, little tiny island that comes down off of Mexico. The Mayans actually dug a channel through by hand there probably whenever they were there a thousand years ago, and, and that actually cut this little tiny, you nearly call it an island now. They, they hand dug a canal there, so it's part of Belize. And um, we fished the flats up there, and the flats over there blew me away, Josh, because the tide... The tide variation is only about 30 centimetres, so you've got these massive flats that are 30 kilometres across and you can't see the other side and you're just roaring along in like a metre of water. It's just, in, and I don't know where the hell you're going across these flats, but the guide seed to none. I'll just pull up in the middle of nowhere and they'll, they'll find fish for you, but that was pretty cool. We went up into, um, into Mexico there one day and we pulled up and paid the Mexican border guards there $20 US and they just waved us through so we could go and fish up in Mexico for the day. We went up and caught bonefish and little little baby Cubera snapper looking things and that, but we didn't we didn't catch any tarpons or, or permits up in there. But I ended up catching an eighty pound tarpon down near Belize City on, on a K there. I think I've seen the photo of that one. Pretty cool fish. Yeah, yeah, they're a big sardine. Oh actually the first one I hooked I, I still well the guide said these fish coming but they were they were out of range and so he just starts tapping on the side of the gunnel with his fingertips really lightly and you know them fish just turn and come straight over towards the the long boat. They fish out of twenty three foot pangers with sixty Telescued yammies on them, and um, I put a cast in front of one on a twelve eight and hooked it. And well, that I had a big T-ball Gulfstream on it, and, and we were staked up. Well, that fish just lit the afterburners and headed for the drop off, and it was it nearly spilled that Gulfstream. The guy didn't want to pull the pull the pole up and follow it. He said, "No, no, he'll stop soon." But but that fish was gone. I had to lock up. It had six hundred meters of fifty pound backing out, and I locked up, and it popped off at the right down at the hook there. But and he said that fish was. Way, way over 150 pounds, probably closer to 200. But Bloody hell. Absolute animal. Oh, just, yeah. 
it brought me to my knees. It was pretty cool. Now, that, that 80 pounder I got, you know, it was as long as me. I was, I was happy with that. I just wanted to catch the one. But in hindsight, we had Jack Cravel busting up. We saw lot, lots and lots of permits. But we didn't fish for them because I just thought, I just want to catch a tarpon over here. That's sort of why we came here. But John Hankey stayed a few weeks. I think he went down to Placentia and caught a bunch of 60 pounders down there. He had some really good sessions down there. But no, that, but Belize was good. I'd go back there again. It's a long flight, something like 36 hours flying time to get back. That was a bit of a killer. But we've um, we've done four trips to Itataki, um, just chasing the bonefish. Once again, it was more of a family holiday with the wife and kids. But certainly not the numbers of bonefish there aren't like they are at, the, at Christmas Island, but, but the quality is there. It's more trophy hunting of Cook Island. So if you, want a, if you want a trophy bonefish, don't expect to go there and catch 30 a day you won't but you, if you catch one or two you know the chances of getting a 10 pounder are, are pretty good yeah i know muzz talks about Idasaki quite a bit because he absolutely loves it over there he said it's same thing as what you said you don't get the numbers that you do in christmas island but it is those trophy bones and you've got triggers and big gts and that's sort of thing on the flats but also oh, yeah. too as a, a holiday it's a bit more westernized so um a little bit more laid back and if you want to go grab a steak for tea you can and um, yeah, it's got a yeah. bit of everything for you the only time I've seen Murray drunk was at the Cook Islands. Oh, geez, that'd be a good one. <laughs> no, it was a sight. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. And so when did you decide that um, you were going to leave Harvey Bay and call Weeper home? Like, had you already met fish at that stage or? Yeah, well, I started guiding um, in the, oh, about 20, oh, what's in here? I don't know, 2012. Uh, no, before then, no, 20, 2005, 2004, 2005 in Harvey Bay. And I probably saw the best of it down there and, and just started off with one boat, but I ended up running running a handful of boats down there. I had a couple of guys working for me. Um, our busy time was through summer back then, so winter time we didn't do a lot. I didn't really want to do a lot because I was sort of more more interested in fishing the flats and for the pelagics, but um, you'd pick away in winter time, catch a few snapper and a few big deep water longtails and cobias and, and whatnot. But anyway, I, I met um, Fish Phyllis Kirk. Morsey brought him down there for a few days and we, we fished up the top of Fraser. You know, we chased small blacks on floor and, and longtails and beer goldies and stuff and... and Anyway, mate, created a bit of a friendship with Fish, you know, because he's a pretty cool fellow to hang around and chat with. One of the pioneers in the industry goes back a long way. Same as, you know, Morsey and Butler. He's in that same sort of a... He grew up in that same time and when them guys were developing new fisheries and, you know, working out what worked out and what, what, what didn't. So Fish eventually said, oh, you should come and guide for me one day. And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be good. And next thing he said, oh, why don't you just come up in winter for a few weeks? So I come up here in winter for a few weeks and I just thought, and the fishing up here is probably a bit better than Harvey Bay. There's so many more species and so much more opportunity for, for anglers. So I ended up doing more and more wintertime work, and the two guides I had had sort of covered the wintertime work that I had in Harvey Bay. And in the end, um, I had a young fella tree, wanted to buy the business down there. So I signed the business, and then I was in a bit of a limbo for 12 months. I'd done a bit of work operating excavators and bobcats and stuff because that's sort of what I'd done when I first left school. And... Um, yeah, eventually Fisher, well, I need a full-time guide. You're keen to move up. So, yeah, we moved, we bought a house about eight or nine years ago and moved up here, and, yeah, I've been here ever since. I know um, Jacko absolutely loves it up there. I can't imagine him moving anywhere else in the meantime. Like, he's got all his hunting up there and fishing and just seats him down to a tee. Oh, yeah, no, it's a... It's a Weep is a fantastic place, you know. It, 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 there's a lot of... If you're not working in Weep, you don't want to work. There's so much employment here, you know, and, and so many opportunities for young people to get to get um, work with Rio Tino or any of the big contractors here. It's 
it's pretty cool. There's apprenticeships and, and traineeships that they hand out. Um, and for young guys, you know, if you want to go out and fish or hunt or, you know, hunt a pig or, or go camping, there's, there's, there's so much opportunity here to do it. And, and, and the options are there. If you go fishing, Josh, you, you usually it's a, you'll go and catch a fish because there's just so many fish here to catch, you know. There's just so much to learn. Yeah, I couldn't believe we're up there a couple of years ago for our honeymoon. I just couldn't believe the um, variety of species up there, but also the different places that you can go. Um, mm. But even like, as you said, like Weeper as a community, I found it really nice. Like I thought it would have been, um, I didn't know what to expect really to rock up being a mining town, but we were lucky to stay with um, one of my good mates, Sam. His brother Adam was living there and working and his mm. wife and young family were there and um, we spent a few days fishing and that sort of thing. But also just, yeah, catching up with people and barbecues and whatnot, going like, yeah, checking out a few of the different touristy places and everyone was really nice. Went down to the Albi there, had a few beers and everyone just got along. Everyone wanted to help out. Um, you found like a lot of the wives got along together. All the kids played together in the park and um, yeah. yeah, it was just a, a really nice scene, I reckon. Oh, it is, Josh. And, you know, and it's, it's a very safe community. I know when, you know, five, six, seven years ago, you'd go fishing on the weekend. I'd take Jacko fishing. Next thing it'd be three or four of your mates. They'd just all come and pile in for the day. And, you know, it's just that sort of a town. Everyone looks after everyone. It's probably how the rest of Australia was 50 years ago before all the political correctness and all the bloody bullshit cut in, you know, and ruined it. But Weeper's still old school like that. And I hope it's, still, I hope it's going to stay like that for a long time because it, that's sort of part of the attraction of living here, you know. It's, it's just old school. Everyone gets on, everyone helps each other. No, it's it's just a real friendly town to live in. And I, th- I think too, it's one of those things that the people that are living up there, they have to find their own fun. So a lot of people are into the same stuff, whether it be fishing, hunting, camping. Um, you've obviously got some pretty cool tourist destinations between there and the tip of Australia. So if you want to go for a long weekend camping, um, there's some areas that a lot of people like it's a bucket list place, but you could literally do it for a weekend if you wanted to. So the, the fun's there if you, if you want to look for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's so much to do, you know. You can drive across to the east coast here and you can access all that outer reef country, you know, all your big trouts and dog teeth tuners and all that. You can you can drive over there in four hours from Leap or you can drive four or five hours and be at the tip of Australia. Or, you know, you can go inland and there's just there's just hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of freshwater country in there to, you can fish with Saratogas and Sooty Grunners and all those species. No, it, it, there's, there's a lot of unexplored stuff up here too, Josh. Well, I've been here eight working, well, I've been probably working here 13 years now for fish between fish and when i've taken over the business and 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 i've only explored probably 10 percent of the place you know and when did you actually take over fishers fly and sport fishing there about uh be nearly two years ago now it was sort of when covid was here and, and sort of fish had sort of worked hard for 22 23 years to build it up to what it was and his business model was fantastic you know he he um he, he knew what people expected out of a charter. You know, good good guide boats, good good guides. Um, you needed the good fishery first of all, which he had. Um, the accommodation was first class because we run clients out of the lodge down at the caravan park there, basically the fly fishing lodge, and um, got our own private chef down there, like five-star chefs that cook for us. So the business model was already there. But, you know, fish had worked really hard. And he, you know, he was, he was nearly 70, so it was time for, for him to retire and go and enjoy himself. And um, we talked about me taking over the business for a while, you know, on and off, and, but nothing real serious. Anyway, then it comes to the crunch. So, yeah, look, I, I took over for fish and pretty much inherited all his, cl- his clients, um, his client base. And um, fish, had a, like I said, he had a great business model, so he, he helped me out through it. Um, meantime, you know, fish is friends, obviously, with Butler and Morsi and that, and they'd come up occasionally and fish, and we'd all sort of meet up and have a few beers and talk bits and pieces about fishing and 
Yeah, no, but it was a pretty easy transition because I already run the gig down in Harvey Bay. But this obviously was a lot more work because we had probably five times, the, six times the client base come through that what I had. So Yeah, and that's it. It's pretty hard to get in with you guys at times. Like it's usually booked out, what, 12 to 18 months in advance. So. Yeah, well, what's the thing? The first half of 2024, there there are spot vacancies in there, but, but you know, there's a lot of groups of eight and ten fly fish shows coming up with us now, and they seem to be getting stronger and stronger every year. You'll, you'll start off with two guys come up, next year they'll bring four, next thing they'll bring eight, and next thing a tool branch off, it just keeps growing and growing like that. You know? And that's the thing, you've got a lot of repeat clients, so they're obviously really happy with the, the whole experience that you deliver. Like they can literally fly into Weeper get picked up at the airport, go to the accommodation. As you said, they've got a, a five-star chef there, great accommodation, some really good guides and boats and some world-class fishing. So, Oh, yeah, that's the thing. We roll it all into one package. It makes it, it simplifies it for the clients and it makes it a lot easier for us. And um, no, it just, it's, a, it's a business model that works in the guiding industry. You know, make keep it easy. And if you've got the quality there, people will naturally come, you know. Yeah, I know. I recently did a podcast with Dougal Realstone from um, New Zealand. He's one of mm. sort of started off as one of Fisher's regulars and now one of yours. Um, yeah. And he couldn't. Yes, yeah, like we spoke for quite a bit before the podcast and afterwards. And yeah, he was absolutely stoked with how how Fish ran the um, ran the operation and now how you're doing it and the guys that you've got working for you. Like he gets along with um, with Young Drew really well and Kurt and yeah. and he can't yeah. wait to get back there again. Yeah, Dougal's one of the one of the gentlemen in the industry. If anyone ever gets a chance to fish with Dougal, you want to grab it because he he's a terrific bloke. You know, he's as much of a philosopher as a fisherman. He he just you often see him at night. We'd do a camp trip and we'd all be buggered and go to bed, but you'd see Dougal in his in his little swag there reading away. He'd be just reading and sucking in information. But even when you're fishing, when you when you're talking, you know, just general chit chat. You know, I'm sitting up the back, standing up the back, looking for a fish to come, and Dougal's down on the bow. Some of the stories he realised that he's that he's that he's picked up from guiding and you know he's obviously fished all over the world he's very successful at what he does but but he's a thinker too he'll take things in and he won't forget it and he'll process that information that night so yeah he's yeah, he's one of the genuine guys in the fly fishing community deagle he's a top bloke super down to earth too like i don't they really uh, messaged him through instagram and facebook and we had a quick catch up before the podcast but i'm um, happy to pass on information he's a great communicator um yep. yeah i've finish reading his book upstream on the Matower and it's interesting how he can go from like he's got that um, connection with that river over there and his trout fishing but he's absolutely obsessed with permit as well so he's not just a trout he's he's a pretty well-rounded angler oh he can he can you know and you know Deagle's very focused he'll stand on that bow all day just to have that one shot at a permit I've seen some fantastic fish swim past Deagle like a GT or a big meter 20 queenies on the flats or you know schools of goldies whatever but no, you just stand there and wait for that permit to come. But you know that sort of thing. When you when you reach Dougal's level of, of fishing, that that's that's your focus. That's the permit, that's the prize, and you don't want to ruin it by being hooked up to a clean fish when one of the permits shows up. You know. Yeah, that's it. You got to just focus on that. And a lot of people probably aren't aren't willing mm. to put in the time and effort. They want to catch that prize species, but um, they're yeah. not willing to just sit on a flat all day. They'd probably get a little bit bored and want to go chase something else. Go chase a queenie on the beach or a barra or something like that. Oh, 100%. And look, I'm not judging people by it either. You know, everyone to themselves. Some people just want action, you know, and, and they'll say, oh, can we go and chase a permit? So you go sit on a permit flat and they go, oh, not much you. <laughs> what do you want? I said, oh, let's go and catch a queenie. So, you know, just go and bend a rod on a queenfish. But hey, look, everyone to themselves, you know, some people want more action. Other people are happy to sit there for that one shot. It's just it's just fishing you know everyone's got get something different out of it josh and that's it like you might have someone that's their one trip a year or their one big trip a year so they just want to try and get some species under their belt 
Um, so they might yeah. want to just try and get as many different species as they can or as many fish as they can. And that's the beauty with weeper. You can, if you're a diehard like blue bass or permit fisherman, you can focus just on those guys if you've got the right conditions or if you want to go, I want to catch a bit of everything and just have a really good week, um, you can do that too. Oh, 100%. And, and, and once again, I'm lucky because I've spent so much time up here and I've bled a lot of information off of fish and, you know, a few of the other guys that have fished up here, you know, we've got like... 30 years, 30 to 40 years knowledge between us. There's a lot of new people starting to poking up here with guiding operations, but they're turning up green and fresh. And if the weather's a bit tough or the tides are wrong, they're sort of at wit's end of where to go and catch a fish, where we've got all that background knowledge we can sort of draw upon. We know where to go and catch a bear or a jack. Or, and that, or the good thing is, too, all you guys harness. live up there. Like you're living up there with yeah. your family. Kurt and Katie have just moved up. Um, he's another great up and coming guy. You've got Drew Bolton. So it is handy that you all live there so that you can fish together on your days off and improve that knowledge. And in the off season, um, you can mm. be finding new spots and developing new fisheries and that sort of thing. 100%. And we're starting to fish now. We, we, we sort of at the end of the season, we're a bit, you know, you do get a bit burnt out and it's good just to be off the water for a while. But from now on, because we start up in another, oh, I think Morsi and Jeremy are up in a week's time. Um, we've got a few bits and pieces of clients, but at the end of March, start of April, we kick off full on with, with four and five boats some weeks. So this next month now, we're going to be fishing pretty hard. We're going to sort of have our finger on the pulse before the clients get here. You know, we'll, we'll know where big queenies are and what tides seem to be producing for barrows. And, and we'll just have the heads up where we can sort of hit the ground running, so to speak, Josh, you know, if that makes sense. And so what months typically does your season run these days? Because you've obviously got the wet season and dry season up there. Yeah, yeah. The wet season usually kicks in around Christmas time. I've driven out a few times and driven back in for Christmas and driven back in on New Year's and, and twice there we nearly got caught by floods. Well, we did actually got caught at the Arch River. We got stuck there for three days once and crossed it at 0.6, which was pretty wild. But um, generally around Christmas, the storms and rain start and they'll usually we usually get a three-month rainy season. At the end of March, pretty much you could time it should stop although last year it went till the end of april i think the first 40 days we guided last year there's one day i didn't get rained on yeah um, <laughs> but this year's been a very very violent wet and i'm hoping it's just going to be a normal three month wet and we've had around two meters of rain so far and around two meters is a really good wet season it's going to really kick the fishing off um but but yeah generally january february march start of april you can it is raining and then once the wet season finishes, usually, apart from last year with that Lanina, we had some horrible year weather-wise, but usually you, you, you don't get any rain then until the following, the following Christmas time, you know. So it's a very defined difference between the wet and the dry season. So what sort of species are the main targets for people that are coming up to Weeper? Look, Weeper's the queen fish capital of the world, right? I've never seen anywhere like it. There's probably places over in the Territory or on the other side of the Gulf there, but queen, queen fish are definitely one of the... the Biggest numbers of fish we catch. If you have a tough day, you can always go and find a queenie somewhere. And look, some of these, there's a lot of meter queenies here. Like a lot of guys, their first first week they have a saltwater fly fish, they'll catch a meter queen fish up here. So we got the queen fish pretty well nutted. But look, we've got pretty much everything. We've got GTs. Them beaches just south of Weeper at the end of the wet season when all the all the jelly prawns are in on the beach. You know, because because the Gulf of Carpentaria is just a massive big prawn. Soup basically, so they'll breed through the wet sea and all them juvenile prawns we call jelly prawns. They're only a little tiny prawn about an inch long and they're like jelly, they're really soft, but they come in along the beaches in masses and everything comes in and feed them, feeds on them prawns. There's, there's like three species of queen fish, there's 10 species of trevally in there, there's giant herring, schools of tarpon, blue salmon, threadfin salmon, barras, you've got everything in there. Um, 
so we usually fish small white clouds along them beach because they resemble a jelly prawn. But um, you know, offshore you've got you've got GTs and brassy trevally, big Spanish long tail and mac tunas. Um, last last year we caught a a um, striped tuna up here, which is pretty wild. I've never seen one of them in the Gulf before. Yeah, I saw a picture of that. That was pretty interesting to see up there. Yeah, I, I, yeah, Jacko. My son Jacko is actually guiding a fellow Tim Kempman from down Brisbane. Well, you know, he, he's a very accomplished fly angler too. But he caught that thing, just threw into a school of mac tuna, and it just burned a heap of line off. It went harder than any mac tuna did, and they caught that. So, just a very lost fish. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I remember fish telling me when they first come up here, like twenty three years ago, or whenever it was. One of the first fish they got up here was a thirty pound albacore. So he was a bit lost. Yeah. <laughs> But we've had broadbill swordfish washing on the beach. We've had oceanic sunfish, whale sharks, killer whales. It's just yeah, you never you just expect the unexpected up here. And you've got a pretty good little sailfish fishery off there too, and juvenile black marlin. So you've got pretty much everything on offer. Oh yeah, no, the, the guys they got a pretty pretty highly active billfish club here. Not so bright, sort of. I think he's president or he's up in it anyway. But he knows his billfish really well. But they've had days they've gone they've gone out and had thirty shots at sails. Um, there are some quite large black marlin here too. I think there's been a few hooked and landed up around the, getting towards the 300 kilo mark now. So Bloody hell. <laughs> oh yeah, big fish. But And strange enough, we hooked one on a popper once and fought him for five hours on 50 pound spin tackle. And we hooked him about 500 metres off the beach in, in five metres of water. And that, that fish is over 200 kilos. Yeah. And you've obviously yeah. got two on the um, the flats as well. You've got the, the Anak permit there. You've got the Blue Bastards, which are another Aussie special, Tuskies, that mm. sort of thing. So some pretty impressive flats fishing. Oh, yeah, yeah. We get some great sight fishing here. Those flats can be fantastic. Even sight fishing, the big, the big diamond trevellies come along, the skilled of blue salmons and all your trevellies. But, but, yeah, later in the season, you do get a lot of permits. A lot of Blue Bastards up here, which is probably the first first place where fish and morse and them boys started catching them. Um. Some great tusky fishing here too, if you know where to look on certain tides. And that's yeah, but no. that's a lot of your beach trips are, um, are more sort of aimed at chasing those species like the blue bastards in the permit? Yeah, more permits, Josh, up north where we go. That, that's sort of really good permit country. There, there, are, there is some country further north up there that, that holds tuskies and blue bastards, which we haven't really explored there. We haven't really had the time because it, it's hard to, to go past permit schools when you're up that that part of the world but you just got to be careful of the swell you can get a bit of swell there that can make the beaches pretty impossible to fish so then you just got to step back to plan b and fish in the river mouths or up in the creeks and and be content with barramundi and mangrove jacks and once again queen fish and a few of the other species in there yeah okay and did you want to elaborate a little bit on like what's involved with those beach trips because it's a pretty cool experience being able to fish during the day camp on the beach at night cook on the fire and yeah it is it is we we, we sort of um Fish put them together quite a few years ago. And I'm, there's me and Fish and Owie, Jason Owens, that was one of his guides now, that still lives in town, but he's not guiding. But, yeah, we done some of the first trips up there, and I think the first, um, first we fished basically for 19 days over three trips, and we boated 49 permits for that 19 days. Bloody hell, that's pretty impressive numbers. That was yeah. That that was the first time we'd been up there, and and we're just blessed with that that year. We had fantastic weather we had blue skies and no wind for pretty much the whole time we were up north there um but but we've certainly had some fantastic days since you know five permits one day two the next you know four the next day but yeah no it's 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 pretty cool to to go up and explore that sort of untouched country and do a bit of camping and and fishing we've been doing that for over 10 years now and and 
sort of we didn't sort of want to take anyone. The guys we wanted to take up there were guys like um, Dougal that that were really focused on them and they enjoyed the outdoors, you know, and they were happy to do that, go and camp on the beach where there might be a few mozzies or sand flies just on dark, but, you know, they only last half an hour, then you have a campfire and a few rums and, and just do, you know, just get back to nature and do some really cool sight fishing. I guess it's one of those things that gives you that full Cape York experience of fishing, sightseeing, camping, but you would have to have those diehard guys because like it can be pretty hot up there. So you've obviously been on a boat all day then you're camping on the beach. So it's not for the, um, the soft hearted, I guess. No, no, no. You know, we've got a pretty well refined with our meals. We eat, we eat like kings when we're up there. Um, and we have a hot shower every night, you know, we, we've got it all worked out. We'd, it's it's hard to do it for anyone six days, just logistics to carry the food and water that you need, Josh. And that's but, the thing. There'd um, be a fair bit of planning involved with enough fuel, food, water, uh, making sure the conditions and tides are going to be right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got to plan them 12 months ahead. That's for sure, yeah. Yeah, and you'd also have to have, um, there'd be safety concerns too, making sure everyone's safe at night with the, um, obviously you've got crocs up on the beach up there, stingers in the water, so there's a lot that can go wrong, so you'd have to make sure you've got everything dialed in beforehand. Oh, yeah, we usually make sure we've got a sat phone with us. Um, yeah, no, crocodiles could be an issue. We've had some big fellas stalk us at the camps here that, you know, you just got to read the subtle signs, but they're there, and, and big ones too, Josh, you know, over four metres, and they'd certainly, wouldn't be good to tangle with one of them. It could ruin your trip. You might not be fishing the next day. But, no, we've had a few, not close calls on the flats, but we have had a few big fellas pop up on the edge of the sandbank and slowly work their way in while we've been fishing on the bar. So we just sort of come and get out the water, get back in the boat. And sort of make sure if, if it's overcast or dark water, just keep away from it, you know, because that's that's where you're sort of going to be vulnerable to them things. Yeah, so I don't know when we were up there barra fishing and that you'd sort of cast and then you'd step back like quite a bit from the water's edge there because you never know what's going to pop up. I think Kurt's... Yeah, it's always in the back of your mind. Oh, bloody oath. Um, Kurt sent me a picture, I think, last year on the flats there and it looked like a log with some golden trevally and little, I think, diamond trevally hanging off it. It's actually just a saltwater croc there up on the flat. <laughs> yeah, they turn up in some funny spots, you know. I've been... I've been six or seven miles offshore chasing school long tiles and suddenly a four metre salty will pop up and you think, oh, what are you doing out here, you know? But obviously they're out there for a reason, to hunt turtles or or whatever they're chasing, I don't know. But, but they like certainly like turtles, they like mud crabs. It's sort of the, um, certainly the place where you definitely don't want to be just jumping in the water anywhere to get a photo of the fish. Like you definitely have to keep your wits about you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people go in the water, you've got to sort of keep reminding clients. We do a safety briefing in the boat and just warning about the general safety, you know, safety aspects of the boat and where all the safety gear is, but that usually end off the safety briefing with, you know, guys, sharks, crocodiles, you know, box jellyfish, you know, be really careful. And, and um, yeah, some people take the warning, some people don't, but you've got to be careful when you're waiting. I've had a few guys that you look around, they're up to their waist, and you say, oh, you better get out of the water there, mate, you're going to get eaten. And, yeah, you're right, and you turn around five minutes later and they're back in there, so... Yeah, you just got to sort of keep on it because it wouldn't be real nice to have someone taken by a crocodile, that's for sure. Yeah, that's it. And I guess having good guides and having them keeping an eye on it sort of thing. Um, like, unfortunately, you can't teach common sense to, to every client. But um, if you've got all the boys there that are keeping on top of it, then you don't really have to worry too much because they're doing all the work there. But um, you've also got some pretty epic fishing in like the sense of like the Wenlock River. Um, I know we went for a day up there, my wife and I, with Jacko and Drew. And that's such a cool system. Like those aquatic palms there, like you feel like you're in Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. I just couldn't believe it. It was such a big system too. Um, oh, yeah. Great barra fishing, jewies, jacks, tarp and all that sort of thing. Yeah, no, the Wenlock's got, got everything. It's a, it's a pretty amazing river actually. It nearly cuts Cape York in half, you know. You can you can fish the top end of it 
walk for days up in the freshwater and catch tarpon, sooties and freshwater jacks and barrows. There's freshwater saw sharks up in there. There's all that cool stuff. And then the, the, the bottom half is probably some of the best saltwater bear fishing on Cape York once you've got it wide. I did a bit of fishing in the um, freshwater reaches and that for the Jardini Saratoga and catching little arches on cicada flies and sooties and that sort of thing. So that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, no, it's 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 a fantastic river, you know. It's, it's right on the doorstep here, but it's, once again, it's it's so close yet we just don't go there. Yeah, which is we probably should, but oh, you know, it, it's so easy to put the boat in it. Weep here and go and catch a fish without dragging the boats eighty k's up a dirt road to put them in a, a bush boat ramp to go fishing. But look, <coughs> something we probably should do more of it, Josh. You now fish up that way because it's a, it's a there's no one guiding up in there. It'd be a fantastic place to start a guiding operation on, especially on the barrows and that sort of stuff. It's pretty cool because you've got you'll be cruising along the bank, then all of a sudden you've got some scrub ball and that running along the bank, and you can obviously see crocs up in there. So it's one of those things as well, just the um, the sightseeing. You see some pretty cool stuff. Oh yeah, there's plenty of feral cattle up there. Yeah, big scrub balls and mobs of feral pigs and palm cockatoos flying past. No, it, it, it's a it's a special place, it really is. And with um with gear selection for people heading up to Weeper, what would you typically say to them to pack fly wise, rod wise, all that sort of thing? Most of our clients, we, we encourage them to bring an, a, rods between 8 and 10 weight. Um, some some guys bring 12s up. And there's probably no real need for a 12 unless you're just going to be doing some dredging for, for some Spaniards and you want to beat bull sharks or whatever. But, but um, 8 to 10 weights, um, a sink, sink tip line, maybe a floating line, but I think a sink tip is going to cover what you're going to chase on a floater and maybe a full intermediate line. And, and certainly white clouds. There's a lot of bait fish up here. Their bellies are white, so... Uh, you know, one o two o white clouds. You'll catch ninety five percent of your fish up here on that. Um, we've caught milkfish, we've caught permits, we've caught blue bastards on white clouds, as you know. So they'll they'll sailfish. So they'll they'll certainly catch anything. Um, leader size. I I don't believe in these tapered leaders or you know five different knots to step your leader down. We just tie a butt section of say forty five or fifty pound, about a meter, and then then on the end of that, I'll tie a meter and a half of twenty or thirty, depending what we're fishing for. Uh, keep it simple. I like to keep things simple. I use a lot of Snyder. I'm not a fluorocarbon fan. I've seen it fail too many times on good fish. But it, it, look, it has got its, its positives. But I, I just prefer the old green Snyder. Um, yeah, it's certainly a handful of white clouses and maybe a couple of pink things or blackened bards and a, a couple of tan shrimps, 102 tan shrimps, like a spawning shrimp style thing. There's that many different variations of them. But, um, you know, that's, they're more for BBs and tuskies. Then a handful of flexo crabs with yellow legs for, for permits and tuskies. And that'll, unless, apart from bill fishing, that'll sort of catch nearly everything you want to catch you. Yeah. And with like your flats flies, like your shrimps and your crabs, are you having to tie them fairly heavy sort of thing? Or can you get away with like a, a fairly lightly weighted crab? Or I think you want a bit of a mixture, Josh. Some spots you're fishing like really skinny water, you know, five or 600 mils where you don't need a heavy crab. But um, if you're fishing a bit of current across a bank or a slightly deeper water, I like to probably have two weights of crabs, a lighter one, then one a bit heavier. Because um, you know, with a crab, you want it to be, you want it to be a crab. If you're not fishing it floating, well, you want it to be on the bottom. So probably I'd prefer to fish a heavy one than a light one. Um, and once again, with the shrimps, I'd have a couple of different weights tied up with the shrimps, a few different size shrimps, you know. But but tan seems to work really well, or maybe a bit of, bit of olivey tan seems to work well too. So. You've got some other cool stuff up there, like you obviously get the triple tail as well, which you can find sometimes if there's a bit of driftwood, and they're a pretty interesting spacing. The old um, the old jumping cod. Oh, they're a cool thing. And, you know, this time of the year is when you catch them too, at the end of the wet season or halfway through the wet season, when all them logs get washed out of the wen lock and they 
the big northwesters, we get a lot of rubbish washes down from New Guinea. And you, know, you get dugout canoes, you get all sorts of things blow down into the Gulf with the big northwesters. And if you go offshore there and find a log or, or anything out there, that, that you'll be guaranteed there'll be triple tails. We've seen 50 triple tails sitting on, on a log out there. We had a big Napier palm, Napier palm from New Guinea come down one day and it had probably 50 triple tails on there. And we caught eight on the fly rod and before they washed up, you know. Bloody hell. <laughs> that was the best I've seen it. But even these, these the, the channel markers out the front here, they'll have triple tails hanging off them. That's the same as here. Like sometimes you find them around the channel markers and guys that are fishing for, yeah, schoolies and whatnot, they'll pick them up. And even some of the old beach fishermen, like I've caught them out in the beach here. We used to chase them a bit when I was younger and you'd catch them on herring and pillies and stuff like that. Um, but such a cool fish, like incredible how they, um, just the shape of the fish, how they, they jump and carry on. Like they go pretty hard on like gear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you get a lot of small ones up in there, that real orangey colour. I've seen some real small ones only 30 or 40 mil long and they're bright orange like a leaf. They just look like a little mangrove leaf. You know the little orange, mangro- yellow mangrove leaves that flow out? Yeah, yeah. Float out with a run outside. They sort of mimic, mimic them and they must float along in them wind lanes and current lines out there and that's how they ambush their prey. And then once they get bigger, they start to hang off logs and bunches of weed or an old float or whatever and they'll, be, they'll sort of just hang on that. But, yeah, no, they're, they're a pretty cool fish. A lot of times if you see that triple tail, if you don't get him on that first cast, you're not going to get him. They wise up so quick. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they're a really cool fish. But, no, young Jacko had a big fat on them for a few years. That's all he wanted to catch was triple tails and he sort of had them nutted out pretty well. It must be pretty cool getting to guide with your son now too. Like I know last season Jacko started to step up a little bit there. So it is cool in a sense that it's a family business um, and that, yeah, he's sort of like learnt off you over the years and he's, he's getting right into it. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's good. Hard to get him out of bed some mornings. He likes to sleep in. But... <laughs> <laughs> Came up the arse and told him to get to work. So. Chase. No, but he's really good. Once you get him out there, Josh, he, he's, he's like, like Kurt and Drew. That, that, you know, the passion's there and they want to... They just want to go and find fish and produce them for the clients. And I think all those guys, if, if the fish and stuff, you, you feel like you're letting people down a bit. But no, but the boys are all good. They all do their own thing and find fish. Um, some sort of specialise more in one field. You know, like Jacko's fantastic and he, like, he loves his barra fishing and that sort of stuff. Um, then he loves, loves his, you know, chasing GTs and whatnot where sort of Kurt will do with everything. He likes his flats fishing, sight fishing, same as Drew. So. Yeah, and that's it. I guess you've got a, some well-rounded anglers there and you all communicate and work together just to make the experience as good as possible for the angler because at the end of the day, if it's if um, if the anglers and clients aren't happy, then you guys don't have a job up there. Well, that's right. You know, we, we, we keep in contact a lot while we're out guiding, either by mobile phone, which we've got coverage for pretty much 90% of the area now with the Rio Tino mine towers down the coast. Um, we sort of keep in contact by... by UHF radio or with or marine VHF sorry or, or our phone. So if one of us is having a tough day, you can you know, sort of ring the other guys and and get a bit of a feel on what they're catching. But and that's sort of where we keep our clients sort of hooked up most of the day because we've got four sets of eyes in the water instead of just one. And you know, so you got a lot a lot more finding power out there. I guess you'd say on a slow day, you'll always find tuna somewhere or a school of Spanish over on whatever reef or. Well, you know, this creek might be fishing well for barrows and shreddies. You know, get, get get your boat in here if you're having a tough day. So we sort of work on that basis where we sort of keep each other informed as a team to, to where we're finding fish. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's not about one boat. It's about the clients catching fish, you know. There's some pretty cool places up there too. Like I didn't get a chance to fish up around the bauxite cliffs and that, but some pretty spectacular backdrops for, for fishing up there. Oh, some of the photos we can get. You, get, you know, you catch a nice barrel or... or 
or whatever down the beach on a fly rod and, and you, you can get the photo with them red balk site glyphs behind you it's, it's pretty special yeah i think for um any of the international guests too it'd be such an eye-opener for them just because there's so many different types of species there but all the different scenery and you really get to experience everything that's right i think the record um was probably before i started guiding for fish but the guy they had six fellas up fly fishing for five days and they caught 53 species for that week bloody hell <laughs> that's pretty cool and we usually average 30 to 40 species for a week you know yeah that's pretty you know that's just throwing little clouds around you know and when i say species some of them little red bloody rock cod things little wine netting cods and that but you know they're all species and at the end of the week you know so we caught 40 species it's pretty cool also too you got to think for like if you've got southerners like from down melbourne way they might only be chasing trout throughout the year or maybe like some brim and that sort of thing so to to go up to oh, yeah. um up to weeper there and be able to catch like all your barren your threadies and your flat species and your pelagics um it'd be, mm. be like christmas for them oh yeah a lot of these guys they've never seen back and come off a of floral josh and suddenly they've got 100 meters gone it's like well, this isn't supposed to happen <laughs> Yeah, well, it does. Is yeah. there um, anything you'd suggest prep-wise before coming up to Weeper for a trip, whether it be like learning to cast heavier flies in the wind or better line management? What's the sort of thing you'd say to someone that was looking at doing a week up there so they, they can get the most out of their trip? But also, too, like obviously you guys work pretty hard to get them shots at fish. Um, how mm. can they maximise those opportunities? Well, you know, it, it's all teamwork to catch a fish. We've got to put the bait, we've got to find the fish and put the bait in the right spot and they've got to make the cast, you know, and, and often that's that's where it gets let down, the cast part. But, you know, I'm, I'm not having a go at now. A lot of these guys trout fish where they only have to cast 20 or 30 feet to put a fly in front of a trout and suddenly they might have to make a 60 or 70 foot cast up here with a big heavy crab on the end. It's, so, yeah, just, just practice, you know. Generally, we can get close enough to the fish, no, no matter how bad they're casting or how good they're casting, is we'll, we'll get a fly in front of them and they'll catch fish, you know. Um, definitely practice with a bit of wind, you know. Um, once you get on a guide boat, you know, you've got the boat rocking under your feet, you've got salt water on your fly line, you've got wind from any angle. It, it's sort of, it's a bit different to standing in a, standing behind a building out of the wind on a grass lawn practicing to cast. But um, look, most of, most, most of the guys have got the fundamentals of casting, you know, the double haul to aerialize enough line and get the line speed, they're going to be able to punch the fly out far enough into the wind or across the wind to, to, to put it where it has to be, you know? Yeah, I guess for a lot of guys, the main thing would be going from, like, if they are from down south and they're fishing a five-weight primarily, stepping up to spending a whole week on the water in the heat, fishing a nine or ten-weight, um, just that extra weight in the combo sort of thing would take a bit to get used to for them. Yeah, yeah, you see a lot of guys, they're, they're pretty chirpy at the start of the week, and by Friday they're starting to wear out a bit. <laughs> but... <clears throat> reality is all this new fly tackle and it's all the same now that you know the new eight and nine weight rods are, are fantastic light things to cast like you know they're, they're amazing bits of gear now. the technology has come so far with everything and even with your boats like you've got some new um hooker boats built in cans on the way and you've got power poles being fitted to them so um mm. did you want to have a chat about some of the new boats that you got turning up yeah, sure. Yeah, well, we've always had a variety of boats up here. And at the moment, we're running a um, six-metre Key West. Um, I've got bought Fisher's old long tail. It's the old six-metre original Cairns custom craft that's been up here for years. It's, I'd hate to think how many fish have been over the gunnel of that thing. <laughs> um, that one's been refurbished, and, and it's going again. Um, I've, of course, I've got the 680 Cyclone, built by Hooker, but it's the Cyclone hull. Um, with a 2D5 on the back. But that, you know, it's, it's a big, heavy boat, and it's got its limitations where we can go on the flats. But... Um, Kurt's building a new 6.1 billfisher. It's going to be a really nice boat. 
It look, looks like a pretty interesting hull. I've seen a few photos, like progress photos. Um, looks like it's going to have yeah. plenty of storage and plenty of fuel capacity. And yeah, no, it's a nice looking thing. I think it'll be great for what he wants to do. And it, you know, it's not too big. You, you sort of got to have a big enough boat that's something that's not unviable to run fuel wise. But um, I've got this new six fifty hooker. I just sort of built the, our own specification with lower sides and you know. All the cast decks and the platform on the back. I've got a new 150 Honda on the back, and it's it's going to be a really good boat. That thing, it's wide enough to plenty of stability, and the, and the hooker holds are great through the water too. Yeah, and that you've got what 300 liters of fuel capacity on there. Yeah, yeah. If you have our base now, we've got 300 liters of fuel capacity. That way, you can go go away on an extended trip for a week. You don't have to carry extra fuel. Everything's under the floor. Yeah, it's, you don't have jerry cans everywhere getting messy and getting knocked over, and yeah, plus the safety aspect too, Josh. You know, you don't have stuff stacked on top of your deck, but a lot of the time we run out of week, we only run half a tank or a third of a tank just for a day, just so you're not carrying the dead weight around too. And do you find the um, the power poles are pretty important for fishing that shallow water stuff up there, just holding the boat in position? Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, I, 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 I'm at loggerheads with the other, some of the other guys. They all love their Bowman electrics. I, I despise the things. Personally, I, I'd, I'd never want to see another one in my life, you know. But I run the pole down the back. That's the most important part of what we do because we'll often – anchor the boat up and stake out on a spot where the fish are moving through. So I just want to sit there nice and quiet. I don't want an electric motor sitting there winding up and down. I think they do speak fish to a degree. I certainly saw that in Harvey Bay years ago with the big goldies on the flat side to keep away from the electric motors. But the poles on the back for me, they're, they're gold, you know. We've, um, I used to run the Minn Coders for years, but I've just, just um, we've got a pretty good deal with power pole, you know, and, and that, they seem to be a really good thing. I used to run some on the Snubby down in Harvey Bay years ago. They're nice and quiet. Um, they'll anchor us up in ten foot of water and just hold you there. But no, I'm I'm in love with the spike down the back. I think they're the most important part of a flat boat up here. And I guess the electric mode is the handy for when you're doing a lot of that barra fishing in the snags. Like if you're going to go and get a snag fly off or a snag lure off, you can drive in quickly and do it nice and quiet. Do, yeah. But it yeah. does have its limitations on the flats and shallow water because if you stick your head underwater when the electric's going. If you keep it on a constant speed, as you'd know, like it's not too bad, but it's when you're constantly moving or changing direction or if you're changing speed, they do throw out a fair bit of noise. Oh, yeah, they're loud. Yeah, yeah, I've, they're very loud underwater. <clears throat> we've got a lot of permit with the big 200 on the back just idling along and we've caught permits 20 feet off the boat with right next to the outboard that's sitting there idling. If you don't change the revs on them, the fish don't worry. But um, now I, I could, used to have a bow mount on some of the older gale forces and stuff and, and the Fly lines are always hooked around, but I just prefer a nice clean bow now for the guys to fish off and sort of do my part down the back. Just sort of trying to think five minutes ahead where the boat's going to drift or where I want to sit. I think now, even like a lot of the time, if I'm running up the island and go sit on the flat up there, I'll, I'll take the electric off and you don't have it sort of bouncing around the whole time. And I'll pretty much yeah. just use it these days if you're going up the creeks, but yeah, I think you're going to have to make up a um, like a plonk or something like that for when there's not a whole lot of run just to keep you in that one area. and. Yeah, yeah, plonk's a good thing. We used to run, well, Fish and the boys run them for years up here before the new, new power poles and talons all sort of came into vogue. They used to have a bit of rope with a big lead, a lead sort of weight on the end with a stainless steel rod coming out and they just lower that over the side and it'd hold the boat there. Is Fish actually um, doing a little bit of fill-in guiding for you still or is he sort of wound right down? Yeah, no, he done 40, 45 days last year, I think, on a few camp trips. I think he's, he's going to do something similar this year. But no, he's starting to wind back. He's... Him and Butler bought that 42-footer. They've been doing a few remote trips and just enjoying life, you know, which, you know, about time he went and done that sort of stuff with Dino. So Yeah, that's it. Like, you can't just work forever. You've got to actually sit back and enjoy it sometimes. 
Yeah, well, that's right. And he's at that stage now. He's, he's off enjoying that. They're doing some pretty cool stuff. You know, they're talking about going up in the Torres Straits for a few months and then way down south into some really remote bower fishing later on in the year for, you know, a month at a time, which will be good for them. Have you ever um, incorporated any trips, which is a mixture of fishing and hunting up there, or is it something that you'd look into down the track? Oh, I haven't really worried about it, Josh. It's 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 um, having having the the land to go on because a lot of it's um, mine lease or Aboriginal land up here. You know, you just got to you know you got to be respectful where you go. But um, it it's it's certainly something down the track. We speak to the right people. It's it's doable. There's a, there's a massive market for people that want to hunt, and certainly a lot of a lot of guys that fly fish they they'll bow hunt or rifle hunt. You know, and you can take them out and show them something cool that they've never seen. I had some fella from Scotland there a while ago, and we went out and. Got him a couple of pigs one afternoon. He took the rifle out and shot a couple, and yeah, that, that was a pretty cool thing. But no, it's certainly something down the track. It, it's it's viable, but just have, like I said, having the country you can legally legally run a commercial like a hunting operation into is probably not the easiest thing to find up here. But um, you know, people with a bit of private land up here and properties, you're right, you know. And I guess too, like at the end of the day, for you and um, Jacko, it's probably nice to have something that at the end of the day, like as you said, you would get a little bit burnt out. After being on the water like sort of five six days a week, it'd be nice to be able to have something that you can go and just enjoy for yourself. That's right. Jacko's real keen bow hunter. I was always real keen rifle hunter. So um, nowadays, I just put a rifle over me back, or even leave it at home, and I'll just walk around with him and you know stand back and video him and just stalk in and and bow shoot a pig or whatever he does. And yeah, it's pretty 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 satisfying just to see him do that. Stand back because he's a pretty handy shot with the bow. Now he's got some really good friends that run that Cayuga. Adventures down in um, Strathburn Station in the middle of the Gulf here. Yeah, probably some of the best bow hunting for pigs in Australia. There, it's a really good tusky boars down there. You know, and he, he's learnt the ropes off them fellows. They, they're like professionals at what they do. Yeah, okay. No, it's really good. He's we learn a lot from them. So it's sort of, yeah, no, it's been good to watch. Yeah, I can't imagine him ever going back to um, back to Harvey Bay or a city or something like that when he can run around a paddock doing that or jump in the boat. And he's really got everything going for him. <laughs> Want to be a good woman to drag him away from this, Josh, eh? <laughs> good woman, good fellow. We can't discriminate, mate. Well, hey, not these days you can't. <laughs> what happens at the Albie stays at the Albie. I'm going to tell him that. <laughs> He's going to hate you. Yeah, probably. He probably won't take me fishing next time I'm up there. No. I'm going to have my bow hunting trip. <laughs> yeah, buddy, hey. <laughs> You'll make me go wading with a, um, a fish for a picture and I won't come home. <laughs> Josh, you're on the deep end of the boat there, mate. Yeah, I'm going to have to suck up the curtain and see if I can take that spare room of his. So. Yeah, you might have to. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got anything else excited planned for this year, Bargy? Or just pretty much trying to keep up with this backlog of clients that couldn't make it through COVID? Yeah, pretty much trying to keep up with the backlog. A lot, a lot of guys that come, we're generally coming once a year, they sort of now want to come twice a year. So we sort of got to fit all them in and we've got a lot, all the new guys that want to come in. But um, oh, we're looking at some other operations towards the end of the year, especially, oh, I don't know if we've, I'm never going to, I don't think I'll ever buy a mothership, but there's certainly that option there. We've got the client base that asked to do it. So that's something we're looking at doing, some pretty remote stuff there. Um, some fly fishing trips down the track that are, that are going to be pretty special. I think that's one thing I spoke to Kurt about because there's certainly be people that they enjoy their fishing but they can't do the like the five, six days or whatever on the beach. Um, so mm. to be able to actually go back to a mothership, have a shower at the end of the day and have a few more creature comforts, I think that'll yeah. appeal to a um, different sort of demographic. But you'd also have some of the older blokes as well that they might not be able yeah. to swag it anymore but they still want to get that full experience of doing a multi-day trip on the water instead of going back to a cabin. So I think that would open up quite a few options for you. Yeah, hundred percent. It would, Josh. Yeah, because what you got to think, a lot of the clients that can that that do this now, they're retired. You know, they they 
they work their guts out their whole life and, and now they've got the money to do it and money's not the option they just want to go and, and have the experience and, and certainly mother shipping isn't cheap as you know because you've got to pay for your guide boats as well as to have a mothership and a chef sit there for the week um but but yeah it's it's definitely there's definitely a lot of lot of interest there and, and people that, that will go and do it um you know some guys might only do it once every few years but um yeah, no, I, I think it's it's definitely worth looking at down the track. Like I said, I've got no interest in owning a mothership. I'd rather at least one let someone else have the headache of running the big boat because I've got a big enough headache running bloody five little boats. So. Oh, just the maintenance on a mothership, it'd just be a non-stop full-time job, basically. Oh, it's a killer. And you have to do things right, too. You can't half do things in the marine industry. You either do it properly or you get out of the industry. You know, otherwise, you'll you'll fall flat on your ass pretty quick, you know, with breakdowns and that. And that's another thing this year. We're going to have these extra boats we're building. We've got, still got another two hookers in line to be built. The next one will be the end of the year or the start of 2024. But the plan is to run four or five guide boats and have a spare one in the shed fueled up, ready to roll. So if you do have a breakdown, you can keep your clients fishing. You're not going to lose anything. You're a pretty lucky man that Denise lets you spend all this money on hookers, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, not many people get away with it, I tell you what. What, what does the accountant say at the end of the season? Oh... <laughs> uh... I'm not worried about what the accountant is. I'm worried about what the tax man says. <laughs> three hookers, that, <laughs> three yeah, three yeah. hookers this year. Be an inter- interesting one to try and explain. <laughs> yeah, come you spent a hundred grand on the hooker. Oh, she's good. <laughs> <laughs> Kept you coming back. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if someone wanted to book a trip with you guys or get on a list, because obviously, as you said, you've got a lot of re- repeat clients, and you've got people that are trying to book in trips that they couldn't get here because of travel restrictions with COVID. Um, what is the best way to get in touch with you guys? Shoot you an email or make a phone call? or Probably email is the best. If, if, trouble is with me through, through the day, I'm either in the boat or I'm out doing maintenance or, or whatever. And if people ring me up, I, I, it's so easy to forget to ring them back or, or write a note down. But an email, I sit down every night and it's physically there in front of me. So um, don't don't feel bad if people... I've got the phone number and, and the email address on the website, you know, Fishers Fly and Sport Fishing or www.weeperflyfish.com.au. Um, certainly my phone number's on there if anyone wants to have a chat. But, yeah, the best way to, to make an inquiry is, is probably through the email. Or there is a there is an inquiry form on the, on the website that people can use too. And what is the best email contact for people if they want to shoot you a quick email? Um, Bargy6, that's B-A-R-G-Y, then the number 6 at bigpond.com. Yeah, okay, too easy. And you guys are also on Instagram and Facebook as well. So if people want to keep up with um, what you're doing on there throughout the season, they can jump on there and have a squeeze. Yeah, they do. Yeah, Fisher's Flying Sport Fishing page on Instagram is probably the best one, Josh. We don't tend to do a lot on Facebook, although I'm just starting to ramp that up because a lot of the older generation prefer Facebook to Instagram. So, um, and I've usually only stuck on a bit of Instagram stuff. So. I guess um, they're both fairly different platforms. Like with Facebook, you can probably tell more of a story. Um, like you can you can put a bit of a, a blog sort of with it, whereas Instagram is more so just visually appealing where you can either have a photo of like a, a, a selections of photos there. So for the younger generation that probably don't have the attention span, they just want to swipe through, Instagram's probably the go. But if you really want to get a proper story across, Facebook can be quite handy for that. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. And it's a good idea to link two together, you know. I'm not very... Um... I'm not really up with computers, all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, the young team, I got they got their heads screwed on a bit more with that. So I just push curd along a little bit more with it, you know. Yeah, just get the whip out, mate. Yeah, they've got to do something, you know. You haven't been doing much lately, so yeah, just working on that Birkenstock tan. That's. <laughs> I'm amazed he's still allowed to wear them up there, to be honest. Yeah, well, no one's caught up with him yet, but it'll come to a head sooner or later. You know? <laughs> Another one of those one-way camping, oh, one-way hunting trips. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
All right, well, we might wrap things up, Bargy. I think we've covered quite a bit there. Um, but mm. if people want to get in touch with you for a, uh, a charter, whether it be uh, sort of in any of your availabilities that you've got coming up this season or down the track, they can shoot you an email at bargy6 at bigpond.com, jump on your website, fill in one of the contact forms, or as I said, jump onto your Facebook or Instagram. They can keep an eye on what's happening there. Um, you've got a great operation up there. Like obviously Alan Philskirk set up a, a bit of a winner up there. You've got a great fishery, great facilities. You've got some really good guides working with you now, like young Jacko when he's um, when he's doing that sort of thing, Kurt Rowlands, Drew Bolton. So um, yeah. I think anyone that gets up there, they're going to have a, a world-class experience with the guides, the fishing, the accommodation food, the whole lot. So I think you've really got it covered. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. No, we try and improve it every year, you know, and always open to suggestions from clients too. But, um, yeah, I just I just run things as if, if if I was going on a holiday, what I'd expect, you know, and just try and keep that level up. Like it does, it it is a job, you know, because you, it's it's pretty pretty demanding job to keep on top. But I think we're doing okay. I had a few little teething issues when I took over from fish, but we're we're starting to get on top of all that now, and we're running really good. So, yeah, no, it's a good fishery. It'd be good to see you up here again too, some stage, Joshua. Um, well, is there anything you wanted to add before we wrap things up, mate? Ah, oh, no, not really, Josh. I think think we've just about covered it all. No, look, thanks for having us on your podcast. It's been sort of something I've been looking forward to coming on and having a chat to you about. Well, hopefully next um, time we catch up, we can try and do something on the water when I finally get up there to see you and Kurt and the boys. Well, next time we catch up, I might be picking you up from the airport, eh? Sounds good. <laughs> it's definitely on the yeah. cards. <laughs> yeah, we'll go and throw a cloud around and try and catch a queenfish. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> go see if we can find a school mackerel. We can bring back the Harvey Bay memories. Yeah, no, I'll pass on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might, might blood that new boat for you. Oh, yeah. I don't, I, if the first fish is a school mackerel, I'm going to go and sink that boat. I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, especially with the name Anak for a boat, I don't think you can have a schoolie as the first fish. Yeah, no, I know what I want it to be, but it might not be. But anyway, we'll see how we go. <laughs> oh, well, thanks again, Bargy, for making the time. I know you're a busy bloke sort of thing, whether you're guiding, doing maintenance, and then also, yeah, working on the diggers and that sort of thing on your time off. Um, but I do appreciate the time and... Thanks to Kurt as well. Give him a bit of a shout out for helping yeah. out with setting up the computer and that sort of thing as well, because it is um, it isn't the most straightforward thing to do. But um, yeah, we'll All keep right. we'll keep in touch. I'll let you know when this one's ready to go, and um, hopefully I'll be up there this year or next year, and we'll catch up for a fish again. Yeah, hundred percent, Josh. I look forward to it, mate. All right, beauty. Thanks, Bargy. Okay, cheers, guys. Bye. Mm-hmm.